0: Welcome, welcome to show 43 on Crypto Voices, Matthew Majinskis, your host here from Latvia. Uh, Fernando, my co-host, is at a fintech event today, cannot make it, but no worries, we have a fantastic guest to introduce and speak with. Stefan Kinsella is a longtime scholar and promoter of personal liberty. He has developed and spearheaded some of the clearest principles, ethics, and logic Against Intellectual Property in a Free Market. He's the author of Against Intellectual Property, as well as countless articles on the topic. He is director of the Center for the Study of Innovative Freedom and editor of the Libertarian Papers. And the most interesting thing about all of this is that he's a patent attorney. Stefan, thanks a lot for joining and welcome to the show. Thanks, Matthew. Glad to be here. Great to have you here. Uh, you are a guest that I've been wanting to have on just for a long time. Our listeners know by now, Fernando and I, we really like, obviously, a lot of the monetary aspects of Bitcoin. We explore that a lot, economic uh, things, but, you know, it's free and open source software. So having a, a patent attorney and someone who specializes in the things that you do and, and written in IP, it's, it should be interesting. So, um, but to begin, I just want to start with uh, one broad, classical, liberal, libertarian, uh, adoption and uh, sort of your state of mind today on libertarianism and anarcho-capitalism. Uh, you were on Dave Smith's show a couple months ago, Part of the Problem, great podcast. And uh, for the first like 20 minutes or so, uh, I just want to tell you, you were really sort of hitting the right notes for me. Uh, he, he sort of asked you the same question, like what's a, what's your broad uh, sort of feeling today on adoption of libertarianism where we where are we where do we need to be in the future long term Uh just a couple things i'll remind you uh you know what you said some of the things that resonated with me you said you've always been fairly disillusioned you know with the effects of political activism you talked about a greater level of understanding for everyone due to the fall of the soviet union which uh Uh hits home for Uh me as i'm within the walls of the former soviet union right now Mm-hmm. You are uh, optimistic on the future of the world and markets uh, primarily due to technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are all getting you know more rich and more powerful individually, mm-hmm. and you know to you it's just going to be a natural progression into, into a better world. I mean, you said a lot more than that, but I just mm-hmm. want to say that 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 line of thinking I'd like to sort of continue that here to start our show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. feel free to weave in Bitcoin if you want on the technology part, but mm-hmm. generally. What would you say about those those sorts of ideas and libertarianism today?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've always—I mean, I'm more of an activist than most normal people, I guess. Uh, in that, I've devoted a lot of my life towards trying to—you know—there's different layers of so-called activism or being part of the movement, uh, intellectual activism, and you know, I've I've tried to de- to develop ideas, and you know, a lot of people think we're working for liberty, we're trying to achieve liberty. Uh, whether it's through political activism, like you know, voting or at, uh, pushing for a given candidate or running for office, um, or uh, trying to proselytize people, change the opinion of the man on the street through a TV show, or trying to change the opinion of the, the academics and universities and hope that it has a filtering effect, but a lot of people. Envision our role in the liberty movement as we're trying to—we're part of a fight, right? A big struggle, and we're trying to achieve liberty. And implicit in that is the idea that that's the way it ought to be done, and that's the way it can be done, and that's our natural role. And I think that I think that may be wrong, or at least not every libertarian has to think like that. Um, And once you kind of realize that, then you think, well, I don't have to sacrifice my life, I don't have to become a martyr just for this because That's not the way liberty is going to be achieved anyway. And the reason I say that is I think that liberty – the reason we believe in liberty, the reason we have a passion for liberty, most people I know that get interested in it, um, is because there's a natural justice to it that appeals to us. And then we start seeing that it's such a rare view right, in society that we've stumbled onto something that's kind of hidden, and we've stumbled onto a secret – and then we get it's almost religious in the sense we then we want to spread it and then we think, hey, if everyone just understood this, we can achieve liberty, you know, the idea that I think some people thought around Ayn Rand's circles when she was writing Atlas Shrugged in the fifties, as soon as she publishes this within a couple of years like we'll have a totally libertarian society. Right. Uh, or or she would call it capitalist. They just had this exuberance and this kind of naive, innocent right. belief that the ideas can spread like wildfire and i don't deny that ideas have importance and in fact that's why we have society and technological progress is because of the gradual accumulation of knowledge over the centuries that other humans have developed whether it's technological knowledge and scientific knowledge and engineering knowledge or economic knowledge and philosophical knowledge and ethical knowledge and aesthetic knowledge um, these things all accumulate, which is a good thing, which is one reason, by the way, why intellectual property is a horrible thing because anything that slows down the dissemination of knowledge or that inhibits people from learning or trading uh, with each other or communicating this knowledge or using knowledge uh, is just a horrible idea because that's how society um, advances. But it just seems to me that liberty – the reason it attracts us is because it does make sense, but we're also aware of – um, look, we just came out of the trees pretty recently. <laughs> right. We're a pretty young species. We've made a lot of mistakes. We do a lot of horrible things. We still have a lot of traits that are not so rational and that are kind of collectivistic and tribalist because of our psychology, because of our evolutionary history, um, just because of even economic phenomena like the prisoner's dilemma and public choice um, issues, uh, or, you know, problems that the public choice school analyzes. Um you know, once you have any type of government at all, or state, I should say, especially something democratic-oriented, which basically we have now since the uh, last couple, last 100 years, um, it seems almost inevitable that you'll have special interest groups that will that will emerge to take advantage of these levers of power that the state gives them. And in fact, it would be rash, irrational not to. Um, and, and so you're going to have people start allying in different little cliques or tribes or files or however you want to call it and using the levers of the state to advantage themselves or to defensively prevent themselves from being looted by another group. And so you, you get this war of all against all to an extent. Um, so there's a natural tendency for… That's why I think we can't, just, you know, uh, we can't just berate our uncles at Thanksgiving dinners and tell him about the eye pencil by Leonard Reed and hope that that's right. what's going to spread liberty. There's a natural economic incentive for people to, to be statist in a sense or to vote in the statist way or to favor things that benefit them because they see the reality out there in a statist society already. So I think the only hope is that, we, number one, that we survive – um the 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 dangers that are coming right um um nuclear annihilation the gray goo problem assuming we survive that um i think that the richer we get which is because of uh, the increase in the number of people the and this and the concomitant advance in the division of labor and specialization of labor Um, In in an economy, in a roughly free market economy, uh, with the advance of free market economics, which has been advancing for 60, 70 years now, right after the trade liberalization after World War II, um, and with the advance of technology, all these things are going to make us richer, and we're just going to get used to wealth and a certain type of freedom um, as a species without having a big theoretical understanding of it. Uh, so it'll become natural. Um, you know, when technology enables a certain type of privacy and a certain type of liberty, the ability to communicate with other people all the time, sending an email to someone in another country, you know, uh, traveling by air, by by airplane more easily and cheaply and reliably and safely now. Um, you know, sort of like this, the uh, the project after World War II where in Europe all these students would travel back and forth this kind of summer year railing thing they do or interrailing and i guess the idea is that you know once once you're a german kid with friends in spain and england and france it, it becomes more inco- more more inconceivable that we would go to war against these these our fellow our fellow cousins basically um, and i think so the intermeshing of the world with trade and Makes is, is everything is advancing in roughly the right directions, and I think that liberty, if it's ever achieved, and it will never be achieved 100%. We could we we could abolish the state someday. I think the state could wither away, and I do think uh, if you think about the process by which the state gains control, you just have to think of the undoing of that. So Hans-Hermann Hoppe has a seminal article, banking, nation states, and something like a reconstruction of the world order. And he kind of identifies these key institutional things that gradually over time the state co-ops or takes advantage or takes, takes control of in order to, or in order to uh, become de- – be seen as dependent by the citizens. And, and, and when it's seen as – when the citizens see it as being essential for them and necessary and they're dependent upon it, then they will allow that state to get away with more and more violations of their liberties, more taxes, etc., uh, so uh, that would be things like the state takes over uh, money, of course, that's central banking now, and they take over communications, roads and transportation, right? all these different um, – and education, public education becomes – the government can propagandize people and keep the wrong messages from getting out. So the state gradually takes, takes charge of these institutions in society, but we can imagine that over time these monopolies are going to get – Overturned just by the slipperiness of human society, right? Kind of the quicksilver capital idea applied to human behavior and institutions. Um, you know, the mail service is not that important anymore because now we have FedEx and UPS and and email and texting and cell phones. Um, and with something like Bitcoin, it could be, and it apparently is. Uh, it, it, it looks like it's going to be an increasingly Bigger threat to central banks. I just listened to S- S- Safadin Amous, his interview with Tom Woods, and he he kept emphasizing that the 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 whole point of the Bitcoin project is to have a non-decentralized money that could become a threat to the central banks. It's not about you know buying a cup of coffee at Starbucks and all these kind of things. So he he focused on the the heart of the issue, which I I, I tend to agree with. So. Uh, I'm hopeful that all these things will emerge. Look, I mean, Uber didn't emerge because a bunch of libertarians who have opposed taxicab monopolies for decades right. because they said this is the way to stop the taxicab monopoly. It's something that emerged naturally in this technological-centered market. I mean you couldn't have had had it without GPS and cell phone and smartphones and apps um, and with some deg- some degree of – regulation where you can just sneak this little system into the market and and get it get it popular with the consumers before the regulators and the taxicab um, lobbyists have realized what's happening right that's what uber did right um, and I'm hopeful that Bitcoin and other things that will emerge naturally will happen so I simply think that if we achieve liberty, it won't be because we libertarians have been pushing for it, so we really in a sense we can't take credit. We can say we were right. We were keeping the the flame burning. We were keeping the ideas alive so that when this liberty starts emerging in a rough fashion naturally, that there will be some uh, theoretical work and principle work already done so people can kind of format it and understand it and nudge it. Um, So that's kind of how I think about it. I am hopeful. Uh, I don't know how long it's going to take, but as long as we're making rough progress over the decades, I think that's at least a good thing. And I think – Conventional commentators like Steven Pinker and these other guys are, are kind of complimenting this this insight by showing that things are just getting better and better and better over time.
0: Yeah. Actually, Safe, uh, Safe will be on our show. He's our next guest in a couple weeks, so excited to uh, to talk about those things with him, and I completely agree with him and you on those points. One more uh, sort of just follow-up though on the overall importance of technology and you know, maybe governance or something. Uh, we had uh, Caitlin Long. She's a Season Wall Street, professional blockchain, uh, you know, professional. Uh, Now she's doing a lot in her home state of Wyoming trying to get them to adopt blockchain uh, friendly laws. She said on our show, you know, in 20 to 30 years, she thinks that basic governance, uh, governance or government institutions will just be governed by software. However you want to abstract that or get specific on that point, uh, it just seems inevitable. And I, I do believe blockchain will be a part of that. But it, does, it just does seem inevitable that everything that you've been saying, just sort of a wave uh, towards progress that technology really can, can help with.
1: I'm, um, I, I don't claim to be a, a technological expert on how the Bitcoin system works or how it's going to play out. I'm a little skeptical of the pro-blockchain pro-block, um, arguments that say that's the real innovation. Um, I don't quite understand... I mean to me it seems like it's an enabling technology for, for a cryptocurrency. Um that's the purpose. Um but who knows what people can come up with with using a blockchain type idea that's not really a currency. Um it seems to me the two biggest barriers to to bitcoin is um um number 1 I mean it's treated at least in the US it's treated like uh, is treated like a a commodity in in so in that Yeah. Capital gains taxes are applicable for every transaction, and to the extent that that's going to be there, that's going to be a big drag. I don't know if it's a big enough drag to kill it or to just slow it down um and the other is uh just imagining what the end game is, how it could actually become uh basically replace or start to replace uh existing fiat currencies like the dollar, which work perfectly fine for everyday transactions for most people as far as I can see. Um, so it's hard for me to imagine what mechanism is going to lead it to replace it other than a currency collapse. And this is one reason why I get a little skeptical when some Bitcoiners start turning into these doom and gloomer types and they start hoping for or, or basing or, um, you know, they start counting on a collapse. Mm. Uh, and if the only way Bitcoin will ever become widely adopted is by assuming the collapse of, of say the dollar, um, I mean, doom and gloom libertarians have been, and the gold bug types have been predicting collapse for 50 years. Yeah. So I wouldn't count on that myself. I think the only way Bitcoin's going to get wide use, um, somehow we're going to have to get around this, this uh, capital gains you know, issue. And... Um, and it's going to somehow have to start competing with the dollar, even in, even when the dollar hasn't yet collapsed or disappeared. That's, that's what I think. Now, I don't claim to be an expert on this. I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, so I'm nervous, actually, about this, because I, I want Bitcoin to become what it could be. And I think it, there's no reason it couldn't be a full-fledged money. I don't think it is yet. Um, I think it's more of a store of value type function. But uh, Anyway, that's that's my take on Bitcoin. I do I do see it has a huge potential in this natural evolution towards a more free society.
0: Yeah, totally agree, and definitely Fernando and myself, we are definitely like Bitcoin, Bitcoin first, Bitcoin not blockchainers. Uh, we that's that's definitely what our show sort of hinges upon. I certainly am open to other functions that may go beyond money and maybe. Solve some IP problems, which I'd like to ask you some questions about. But um, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. it, it, I totally agree. It's for sure the the function that it started with it was money and solving problems with with money and friction and money and money being devalued too quickly and all the rest. So, totally agree that that's that's where the heart of it is, uh, at least for now. So let's let's uh, let's talk about Bitcoin then a bit and maybe some IP issues if we can if we can get into it. So, the Bitcoin network it is underpinned buy software that is completely free uh, open source available to everyone you know 24/7 365 for download uh, no subscription or fee to download it it can be freely run you know even edited you know you can create your own implementation and as long as you follow a general set of uh-huh. uh, rules consensus rules you will remain a part of uh-huh. this network validating transactions participating. Uh-huh. And on top of all this, or uh, maybe despite this, to some IP. Uh, fans, the software, you know, the network, the system, it has managed to create, mathematically a scarce in-demand digital uh-huh. good that for now is succeeding. Uh-huh. So to me that's just those are two amazing things that are uh-huh. probably at odds with most of what you've been studying your whole life. Uh-huh. Uh, open source free software no ip connected and yet we have a scarce (laughs) digital good uh what does this tell us and you and those who focus on ip what is what is that telling you
1: okay so uh, over the last 20 years i've you know i've thought a lot wrote a lot argued a lot about intellectual property as a patent lawyer and as a libertarian i was interested in this area and i saw much confusion in it so i I, I've 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 come to think of it in certain ways as a result of all these interactions with people and thinking it helped clarify my thoughts on property, economics, and the way to explain and look at these things. And now with the advent of Bitcoin, we have sort of the same thing happening um, a second time. Okay, so I would say number one, to, to think about what what Bitcoin is. Um, so, so, for example, the word scarcity that you used, I think we have to be really careful with that word. These, the, the total supply of Bitcoin is scarce in the sense that it's, it's limited to $21 million by the year 2140 or whatever that, that year is. Uh, and that's assuming no changes will ever be made, which uh, I think Safe moose made a good point in the Tom Woods podcast that it basically a hard fork is now impossible and if you do have a hard fork it just creates an altcoin but the original will st- still keep going and i think that's possibly true um i mean one one quibble i might have is that you say there's only 21 million bitcoins but you know there's a couple dozen bitcoin um copies out there right now so in a sense there's more than 21 million but <laughs> it depends on how you define these things right and what what works and what keeps being uh, used Um, and I suspect it will be the main one. Um, I think of Bitcoin as a a scheme or or a game or a system that people voluntarily participate in. It's basically software that's running on many decentralized private computers simultaneously, and they all keep track simultaneously by communicating with each other. They keep track of of a ledger, so the software generates and maintains a ledger. And that ledger is, co- is distributed in many people's computers. So I think of Bitcoin as a distributed ledger run by software. Um, and the ledger is just information. And Bitcoins are units on that ledger or entries on that ledger, um, particular Bitcoins, right? Um, and, the, and the system is designed with cryptographic control so that particular holders or controllers or whatever you want to call them. Sorry, that's my poodle. Um, … Of, uh, of a Bitcoin can, 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 can cooperate with that network using the rules of the game, and they can transfer it to someone else. Um, and you don't need law to do this. You, you don't need legal recognition of this. You, you just do it because it's just so much, so, so much more secure than a property rights system anyway, but it, it mimics the properties of a property rights system. So we tend to use the word ownership and things like that and a sale of a Bitcoin even if that's not legally uh, appropriate um so i think the bitcoin system um look i was talking to my friend jeff tucker the other day about this and i said you know um if you think about the advent of paper money okay the paper tickets or represent a piece of gold so originally they're just a stand in so you have these money substitutes arise and there's a reason people want to use paper tickets instead of the gold because it's more convenient to carry it around or whatever but the danger is that because paper is just information on a little basically free sheet of paper, it's easy to copy it. So you're kind of flirting with a non-scarce aspect to represent a scarce thing, which would be gold. Um, So all these designs and intricate printing mechanisms arose to make it difficult to copy uh paper notes, which is why, you know, like the British pounds have a plastic in the middle and all these watermarks and holographs and right. they're trying to put scarcity onto something that's not naturally scarce. In other words, it's really easy to print a piece of paper that has information on it. But they're trying to prevent that. And in a sense Bitcoin did the same thing because digital information is really easy to copy. So they're trying to come up with a way to make it not easy to copy. And the way they did that was they made a network Right, where everyone has to abide by the rules to be part of that network, and it's just defined so that there's only 21 million spots on that ledger. So it is a brilliant achievement. Um, And I've also come to see that uh, there's an insight by Mises I've been relying on lately, where Mises recognizes early on in his work and then later on that there's a distinction between what he calls – um, sociological, which he means economic. That was his early word for it. Mm-hmm. Or later he called it catalactic. But catalactic ownership and legal or juristic ownership. So he makes a distinction. He says that you know, if you're just a human actor in the world to achieve something, to act, to, to aim for an end, what you really want is um, the control or possession of a resource. Now, people use that the, – they use the word ownership of that. So people will say, I own 12 Bitcoins and what they're trying to say is they they have control in the bitcoin system of 12 bitcoins they have the ability to transfer those 12 bitcoins to someone else uh, reliably right, right? a one time a one time transfer that can't be undone and that can't be double spent and all that kind of stuff because of the encryption scheme of the system so they use the word ownership as a practical description of their ability to 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 transmit this to someone else … which gives them the ability to get paid for it, like they can get paid money or they can get paid in services or, or goods or something like that. Um, but it leads to confusion because the word ownership is, 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 is loaded with, with legal connotations too because it means that you have a property right in this. And I don't think technically you do, for the same reason you can't own patterns of information in the intellectual property sense. right? Like if I write a novel or if I come up with a new invention, I don't own the knowledge Behind that, um, I only own scarce resources in the sense of physical goods that can uh, that are uh, uh, can only be controlled by one person at a time. Okay, and so bitcoins to me a bitcoin is just an entry in a ledger, and that ledger is stored on thousands of people's hard drives or memory devices. But they own those hard drives. The way that they're formatted is is not something someone else can own. I can't own a piece of your computer. That stores a copy of the blockchain. I don't have the right to use force, like to get a court order. To t- so, so let's say Joe steals my bitcoins. Now, how? Now, first of all, how does someone steal your bitcoins? The word "steal" is even a metaphor there. They have to somehow have your key. So may, maybe they point a gun at your head and they say, "Give me your key, your your, uh, your your private encryption key, or I will kill you." So, okay. So they coerce the key out of you, and then they take your ten bitcoins. By … by using your key to transmit them in that network to their account, and then they buy something with it. Then they're long gone. right? If you go to court and say these Bitcoins of mine are stolen, I mean Bitcoins are fungible, but they're somewhat identifiable as well. So you could theoretically get a court order saying these 10 Bitcoins were stolen from you by force, so we're going to have a court order to the Bitcoin network to force them to give you your property back. You know, Like if you lost a watch or someone stole your watch, and you found it on an innocent person ten years later, you could get your watch back because you own that watch. They bought it from someone who didn't have title to it. So if you follow that metaphor, which you might be prone to do if you use the word ownership to describe your control of Bitcoins, you might start thinking that you have a legal claim to these things. Then you think, well, if I can identify the Bitcoins that were quote-unquote stolen from me, I should be able to get a court order… In a private society or a public – or, or in, a, in a state of society, whichever one, but some kind of order of force to the – to who? To the holder? But there is no Bitcoin corporation. There's no Bitcoin network that you can direct this this to. You would have to have basically a court order aimed at all 10,000 or whatever the number of people are who own their computers or sitting in their basement in, in Scandinavia or in Latvia or wherever they've got a copy of the ledger on their computer, and they're going to get a court order saying, we direct you to go in, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, hard fork the whole thing and make this change and undo that transaction and give this guy's coins back. But that assumes that the person making that order, that using that, that, that coercive, forceful threat owns your hard drive but they don't you own your hard drive and it's up to you what information is stored on your hard drive so this is why you can't own a bitcoin and why in a sense theft of a bitcoin is impossible in the legal sense right now bitcoin uh, advocates get really upset when i say this kind of stuff because they if they hear someone say you don't own your bitcoins they're thinking in the practical sense they're thinking that i'm saying you don't control your bitcoins but that's not what i'm saying because i'm talk i mean people use the word in different senses i admit that you control the bitcoins and if you want to use the word ownership that's fine but you don't really have an ownership claim in the legal sense to a bitcoin because that would imply that you have an ownership claim towards other people's physical property because that's where bitcoins are stored ultimately they're stored in memory cells on you know RAM devices and hard drives on people's computers, and they own those computers, and it's up to them what they can put whatever they want on there. They can put fake data on there. They can do whatever they want. And if 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 the Bitcoin network rejects this because it's a bad, it's a bad, uh, uh you know, it's 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 not a, a validated transaction, it will be rejected by the network. Fine, but if it's accepted, fine. So that's how I see the whole Bitcoin thing. I could be wrong. My technological understanding of it could be crude. But as a lawyer and as an Austrian and as a libertarian looking at it, um, and as someone who's pro-Bitcoin, that's how I see it.
0: This is definitely one of the questions I had for you. And I've heard you say this before, uh, this sort of uh, technical legal sense about it. But so how then would you describe uh, Bitcoin in terms of of a good forgetting capital gains or whatever future it may have in the united states government yeah what is your description of bitcoin as a as a digital good
1: yeah and so then we so then we get back to pure economics and, and economics per se in in my understanding doesn't really um presuppose any legal framework right. so when we talk about economics we talk about human action and humans And that would apply even to Crusoe alone on a desert island. There would be no money there, but the point is economics is a descriptive science, and it looks at what people do. And when there's other people around, they interact with each other, and some of those interactions can be best described as exchanges or trades, right? and there's different types of trades. Sometimes it's a trade of a physical object for another physical object. I give you a banana. You give me a lemon. And in a legal system, there would be an ownership claim or title to those the objects, and so the legal exchange would also happen. But in an economic – from an economic point of view, the exchange is just uh, an exchange of, of utilities in a sense. Uh, I'm, I'm giving physical possession of this over to you, so now you can physically possess the lemon and do what you want with it or whatever. Or I could give you a banana if you help build my hut. Right, because you have the skill to do it. So we could describe that economically as a sale of a service. I'm selling my service, and I'm being paid with a banana. Okay, but legally, you don't really sell a service because a service is not a scarce resource in, in the sense of a physical object that can, that can be title to it. You don't have title to your, to your actions. Your actions are what you do with your body. You do own your body. And ownership of your body gives you the right to perform whatever actions you want or to refuse not to perform actions that you want. And everyone knows this, and therefore that gives you the ability to make a bargain with someone saying, listen, I want your banana, and you want me to, paint, to fix your house. And I'm just not going to do it unless you give me the banana. So they make an agreement, and the agreement is I will give you the banana if you paint my house. And most people think of that as an exchange, but it, it, legally, economically, it is an exchange –… because each party gets something from it. But legally, it's not an exchange. It's a one-way transfer. It's a one-way transfer of the banana conditioned upon a certain event happening, and the event is the action performed by the other guy. Okay? So you don't have to say he owns his labor to do this. It gets to be unwieldy. As you see, it just took me a while to put it in these legalistic, technical terms. So people tend to say, okay, I sold my labor. He sold his apple. I bought the apple with my, or the banana with my labor. He bought my labor with his apple. That's an economic description. But the problem is when we intermingle the economic level of description with the legal level, uh, you get confused. And you start thinking that, well, you own your labor, and then the mistake happens. Well, if you own your labor, then you own the fruits of your labor. Now, that's another metaphor, right? I mean, what does a fruit mean? Right. Um, we're not talking literal fruits usually – um, although in the civil law, there's a concept called civil fruits. So if you if you have money, you own money, and you loan it to someone, and you get interest, the interest is called civil fruits because the the, the interest you get from the borrower grows off of the the tree of money you have. You see, so it's a, everything's metaphor and analogy, um, and that's fine. You just have to be aware that it's metaphor and analogy. So I don't think that Bitcoin is an ownable thing. but I don't think it matters, and in a sense I think that the practical property scheme that Bitcoin sets up is even better than… … because look, if I own a bicycle legally, someone can steal it from me. The mere fact that the law recognizes me as owner doesn't prevent someone from stealing it. It may make it harder if we have a good legal system, but Bitcoin is designed so that it's virtually impossible for someone to steal it because they can't guess my code and as long as i keep my code my private key secret no one can take it from me now the government can but that's because we have government that can coerce people and you know we're against the government in the first place but theoretically the 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 fake property scheme set up by bitcoin is better than a real property scheme i just think we need to keep them conceptually distinct
0: okay Uh, two follow-ups first totally like that line of thinking i mean i always say a I can't remember where I first heard this, but a uh, simple way to describe, you know, something like, do you own your job? You say, well, if you work for one person, if you work for one person and that person dies, do you still own that job? You know, it just, it doesn't make sense in any, in any way.
1: Well, let, let me, let, let me, let me, let uh, me, let me interrupt that and give you an, look, people say like um, uh, another business came into town and they stole my customers. Or this guy came and he stole my girlfriend. So they use language like steal, but you know, you don't really have a property right to your girlfriend and you don't really have a property right to the future continued business of your customers. Yeah. That's called, you know, free market competition and a free society allows some other guy to compete for your girlfriend or to compete for your, for your pizza restaurant customers.
0: Exactly. Um, so, so all those things I think are very good to understand all of that, that argumentation there. And, and then the second point i wanted to ask then is is do you see a future then where maybe and this kind of goes back we're talking about blockchain governance whatever in a loose sense like do you see a legal system in the world that could maybe develop where an on-chain system of a verification of uh acceptance of of this trade simply will trump any other off-chain claim like do you think the off-chain or the analog legal world could ever really just morph into an on-chain world? Do you understand what the question?
1: Are you are you talking sort of about the smart contract idea?
0: Just the the same topic we've been talking about. Um, you know, do you think that our, our outside analog, you know, legal system or even a natural law, private property law system, will just be so unable to deal with it any other way than just say, yeah, if if your coins move and you claim that they shouldn't have moved on-chain, there's just nothing we can do for you. I mean, that's that's the governance rules of the system. Oh, uh, I see. That's it. I just mean, that, will, will our will our legal world, as it currently stands, ever like truly ad- adapt to Bitcoin and just say, yeah, the digital uh, stamp is final?
1: Well, our our legal world right now is is um, is not perfectly compatible with with what I think would be a, a just and a, a consistent legal order. Our legal world now is able to. Treat intellectual property as a type of property right, and is heavily dependent upon inconsistent metaphors and other things because of because of the state laws that we have, right? So the system is very comfortable right now, um, just treating something as ownable, even if even if when you look at it closely, it doesn't make any sense. So I think actually, I think this is already happening. I mean, I think the the, the state systems we have are already treating Bitcoin. As a good, as a legal, legally defined good, even though it's it's basically an unownable thing, right? But they're treating it as a good because it's a utilitarian system that treats things that quote have value. Because all the government cares about is basically taxing us and controlling what we do that matters to us, so they can control us. And they know that you know economic value or monetary value makes it, has has is meaningful to people. Um and if they can get get a tax out of it uh, you know, tax some of this transaction they'll do it, and they'll they'll just classify it the way they need to to do that anyway. so I see no reason why uh, the existing kind of positivist ridden legal order uh is not going to just incorporate bitcoin uh into the legal order and regulate it and treat it and classify it and tax it and all these things. I don't know if that's a good thing because <laughs> this is how the government tries to control these things, and I do believe it will impede the adoption of Bitcoin. Whether it will stop it is another question. I doubt it because the U.S. is not the only government. No government is the only government in the world. You know, there's roughly 200. Um, I'm not so sure that the adoption of Bitcoin in a in a little backwater country is going to matter too much. Although. If I understand this correctly, you know, a lot of these countries have these uh, sort of treaties and practices with respect to each other's currencies where um, if you use a foreign country's currency like in the US, it's not treated as a good that's subject to capital gains tax. It's treated as another currency. So if you could get one legitimate country, even a small one… To somehow recognize or adopt a Bitcoin as their money or as a legal money in that system, possibly that could have a wedge effect, right? They could, it's like the nose under the camel's tent. It, it would be a way to to get the U.S. and Europe and other major powers to start treating it like a, a regular currency, and that would remove a lot of the barriers to, to using it. I mean I, I don't ever want to spend a single Bitcoin because I don't have to keep track of the capital gains and pay it. It's ridiculous. If it was treated like a currency, that would be a whole different story. right? Then it would make it a lot more easier to be used by people. Um, now, there's lots of people who use it, but I think they're basically tax scoff laws. And that's fine. I'm not against tax evasion. I'm not saying it's wise, but in every case. But um, the problem is you're not going to have widespread adoption because most people don't want to be open tax uh, tax evaders because it's dangerous. So you know, that's kind of my take on it.
0: Okay. Uh, let's maybe still uh, make sure we hit the bullseye, though, on this point about uh, the definition of it in an economic or natural law sense then after everything we've talked about. How, how would you then, very simply, how would you describe – Bitcoin economically, or in a right natural law, private society way.
1: Yeah, uh, Je- I mean Jeff Tucker and I wrote an article uh, five six years ago. It was about um, goods scarce and non scarce, and we were talking mostly about intellectual property at the time. And we were trying to classify things that are used in commerce or in human trade or human interaction, whether whether to classify them as a good or not a good. And things like that. Um, it seems to me that economics is a descriptive science and that we observe what humans do and we try to come up with um, categories and concepts that, that describe these things and then we analyze them, right? We see the implications of these things. Uh, m- money is a good example of that. So, money traditionally has been some physical commodity that had certain properties that made it suitable to be a widely used indirect medium of exchange, right? Gold, seashells, whatever. So you have to have a you know something that exists, something that's not too plentiful, something that the quantity doesn't grow too fast, and something that is fairly uniform so that it's divisible and you have enough, you know, homogeneous units of that so people can trade it and keep it and use it for 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 indirect exchange or for money. And you know no one ever thought that it could be an entry on a distributed ledger stored right. in computers right. around the world because of a an encryption system and a blockchain system and a internet system that connects everyone at the speed of light basically um or the speed of electricity whichever one it is um so I think that when we see people trading something of value, economically speaking, right, then if, if, as soon as someone is able to control something sufficiently to, to transfer it to someone else, which is what you can do with Bitcoin, I can transfer one Bitcoin or one half of a Bitcoin in that system to you because of the way the system is designed. And people do value it. It has, it has a price. I can, I can take that Bitcoin and I can trade it … for services or for goods or for other types of money, right? fiat money. Right now, it has a price, so it has a price. So Bitcoin's about $7,400, last time I checked, something like that, per Bitcoin. So you have something. How to describe it metaphysically or ontologically? I don't know. Uh, I, I mean I call it a ledger entry. <laughs> it's an entry in a special type of ledger that's never been designed before, but apparently it has value. And, and you have a large quantity, and they're roughly uniform, and they're somewhat fungible. And so therefore, they could be traded in exchange for indirect purposes, and it could – if it's generally used enough, it could become money. So I would call it money <laughs> as for what kind of good it is. Um, is it a scarce good or a non-scarce good? I don't think it's a scarce good in the sense that um, you know a teacup or a car is a scarce good because it doesn't have the rivalrous property – where that it's independently existing. Mm -hmm. So um, a Bitcoin doesn't exist independently. It's data stored on other people's computers, and those computers are already owned. So if you said you own the Bitcoin, if it's a type of good that's ownable, then there would be a conflict between ownership of the computer hard drive and ownership of the Bitcoin, and I don't think there could be conflicts… So the ownership question has to be settled in favor of the owner of the computer owns his computer. No one owns, no one owns the data on the computer. Even the owner of the computer doesn't own the data. The data is just not an ownable type of thing. So it's got to be a type of good that is valued but doesn't have ownability attached to it. So whether we need to come up with a new class of goods to describe this, fit it into the framework of goods, I'm not actually sure. I would call it an economic good… Uh, Think of it like this. Mises talks about um, human action in his praxeological framework as the employment of scarce means to achieve ends, right? So when he says employ scarce means, he's imagining some basically some physical thing that could help interfere with the flow of events like a factory and achieve what you want to achieve. So it has to be causally it has to achieve some causal change in the world which is generally you know if i use a li- a lever to lift a rock or i use a a gun to shoot a hole in something i i'm causally interfering with the way things work to achieve my goals right it's hard to imagine in that level of description a bitcoin as being a causally efficacious means and yet if i wanted to obtain um you know a wedding cake for my wedding I could use my bitcoins to purchase one. So in a sense, the bitcoin would be my means to achieve that. Right? So it depends on what level of analysis you should think of. So I think that bitcoins are like economic goods but with some exceptions. And and by the way, if you this is not making exceptions is not um a, a cheat. A cheat I think is recognizing the reality that something different has emerged. Even mises by the way, says, you know, most people think that all goods are consumer goods or capital goods, consumption goods or, you know, the the means of production. But Mises and Rothbard recognize that money is what they call a sui generis good, like something unique on its own, because, you know, a car or a factory or a house are all either capital or consumer goods or food. And if you increase their supply – that's necessarily a good thing because you're increasing the number of goods in the world, right? And you reduce scarcity. You reduce want. You reduce scarcity. If you have more tin, it's a good thing. If you have more copper, that's a good thing. If you have more strawberries, that's a good thing, right? If you have more houses, that's a good thing. And if we woke up tomorrow and the, the space aliens had come overnight and rebuilt everyone's house with a brand new mansion. And with good indoor plumbing, we'd all be better off. There's more of the things that are goods. But money is a type of thing that's different than that. If you increase the supply of money, you do not increase wealth. Right. If you increase the supply of watches or, or tools or factories or, or cattle or even land, you, you increase wealth in the world because you increase the supply of resources humans can use to achieve their ends. But if you increase the supply of money – you don't make anyone wealthier, except the person who prints it, maybe, if it's printed by one person. You know, If we woke up tomorrow and there was twice the amount of dollars in everyone's wallet, basically prices would just double, and we'd be back to where we were. So money is a unique type of good, and I think that Bitcoin, in a sense, could be a unique type of good. Um, Safa Moose, in his interview with, with Tom Woods, uh, pointed out that um, – it's a unique type of thing in the sense that it's, a, it's, it's, it's created an absolute type of scarcity for the first time in history. Because even gold is not really scarce because we could just devote more resources to mining more gold.
0: Or take it on asteroids or whatever. Yeah, we, we talked about that with many economists actually about that point. Yeah, totally agree.
1: Yeah, so an asteroid could hit the earth and, 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 and quadruple the supply of gold or whatever. But the number of Bitcoins is 21 million. It just cannot be it – can't, it can't be changed uh, as far as we understand. So it's a special type of thing. So I guess I would have to call a uh, Bitcoin a type of economic good, but it's it's sui generis because it has distinctions or differences from um, traditional type of goods.
0: Fascinating. I will link to uh, your article, Goods, Scarce and Non-Scarce, uh, with Jeffrey Tucker. Looking at it right now, you've, you have a quadrant, scarce, non-scarce, good, non-good. Most of IP, I'm sure all of IP is in non-scarce, my quick read here. And uh, yeah, I think we probably just have to leave it for now. Uh, we probably have 50 directions on this.
1: Well, you wanted to, did, did, I don't know if you we have time, but you wanted to ask about using blockchain to enforce a type of IP. I don't know if you want to go there or not.
0: Yes, let's let's try to get there. One more question, though. So let's leave it at, at money. Very fascinating stuff. Do you think Bitcoin needs uh, protecting, you know, air quotes, protecting in any sense of uh, that word, or do you think the system will just continue to work organically uh, on its own? There's a couple of things to that. I just want to say them. So obviously there's a huge drama last year and for many years about the scaling debate. Uh, it eventually ended up in the a fork of Bitcoin Cash and uh, a failed fork of the Segwit2x coin. Uh, and there are a lot of people in the Bitcoin uh, proper, let's say I like to call it, uh, which I, I definitely am sympathetic to the traditional Bitcoin side who, think that they definitely need to protect this uh this this idea of bitcoin and others are trying to take it away and then there's even more developments which i haven't heard the latest of i saw some rumblings of them on twitter but i think there are actors in the space primarily uh, roger veer who has been on our show and he runs bitcoin.com and there's some confusion that some in the bitcoin.org space or bitcoin proper space think that the word bitcoin, you know, is being misused with bitcoin cash. It's causing confusion and they're actually taking the brand. They're taking the name bitcoin in a bad way. And they've actually threatened litigation. Mm. At least I've seen this on Twitter like they've threatened litigation, you know, I guess through the US court system. Uh-huh. I, I am extremely sympathetic with their qualms, but I'm not I think it's an absurd sort of way to handle that. W- what do you think about some of this drama about First of all, does Bitcoin need protecting in any sense of the word, and then you know if the u s government passes something about some website that's not going to have any effect on Bitcoin in and of itself?
1: okay, so the only protecting I think it needs is the government to stop penalizing it by treating it to capital gains taxes and things like that so I think it should it should be treated as a currency um so that so that it, the impediments that that uh that holds it back are gone. Then we'll see what the free market decides, right? Um, I was not aware of any threatened, basically trademark suits, it sounds like you're talking about. Are you saying there's trademark suits threatened by the Bitcoin core side against the Roger Veer Bitcoin cash side?
0: Yeah, I think, I'm not as sure the the technical legal term, but I can tell you that one of the main complaints was basically Bitcoin.com, which is Roger Veer's site, uh, they were basically advertising their wallet as being a bitcoin wallet, yeah, but you know bitcoin cash was basically the de- the default setting, yeah, so things like whatever whatever legally that means that 's what they had a problem with, and they wanted to to sue
1: yeah well okay so here's here 's my take on it I think that the uh, this this space is fully able to self police itself and there should be no look i 'm against all i p law patent and copyright, but also trademark law, trademark law. Which is what this basically invokes um, uh, and fraud law to an extent, trademark law is totally invalid, I believe, because um, to the extent it does something more than what fraud law would do, it's doing something um, uh, unjust. so if it gives it basically it's like it's like defamation law at that point, it gives people a right to reputation or the right to words. Um, now, we all agree that fraud should be a species of things that's prohibitable or actionable in some way in society. But fraud has a specific meaning. It means, it means tricking someone by deceit to give up ownership of something they own in exchange for something that's not what they thought they were getting. Okay, that's what fraud is. Uh, however, even if you believe that fraud should be prohibited, first of all, you don't need trademark law to do that. You just need contract law and fraud law. Um,
0: Which is what you've argued for a long time, right?
1: Yeah, so the question is, is there fraud happening here? And even if you think there's fraud happening to some degree, doesn't necessarily mean you think there should be a response. You could believe in what's called caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. Uh, If people are too stupid to do their own research and they get fooled, then hey, maybe it's a good thing that fools are parted with their money. And I'm sympathetic to that view, to be honest.
0: I'm a big fan of that one. We've used that example before.
1: Um, that said, I do, from what my own experience with this space, I do believe that the entire Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin.com space has been a little bit shady in how they've been using this word Bitcoin. And look, I've known people personally who've gotten fooled or, or confused, um, which, by the way, is the hallmark of trademark uh, claims is called you know likelihood of consumer confusion. So someone, you know. I, Look on the day that uh, that, that that Coinbase uh, announced early, unexpectedly, that they were supporting Bitcoin Cash. Yep. Um, the price of Bitcoin Cash went up briefly to four four thousand dollars or something, if I recall. And I believe uh, that a lot of people logged on and they thought, "Hey, I can buy Bitcoin for four thousand dollars." It was it was it was twelve thousand dollars yesterday. That's a good deal. So people have been confused. I would tend to blame them rather than. Although I would also blame people for being scammy, I, I do think that the way Bitcoin Cash um, uh, tries to keep saying uh, they try they keep trying to slap a new label on the on the original Bitcoin um, chain like Bitcoin Segwit or Bitcoin Core. And what's funny, from what I understand, is there's I don't know a couple dozen, maybe four dozen uh, Bitcoin spinoffs, which are all called Bitcoin. And one of them – the new one is called Bitcoin. So, so someone invented something called Bitcoin Core a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you heard about this. Yes. So there's actually a Bitcoin Core altcoin out there, <laughs> which which probably was a, a a cheeky defensive maneuver just to prevent the Bitcoin.com people from continuing to call regular Bitcoin. Bitcoin Core, because now there's a, a clear confusion. <laughs> the
0: but official official Bitcoin Core coin, you can't be.
1: So I, I think I do think the Bitcoin Cash people have been a little bit shady in their strenuous their strained arguments for it. Like they'll argue that a Bitcoin Cash is Bitcoin. Now they say that like it's a fact, but that's not really a fact. That's just a, a way of describing something, and they're trying to use what seems to be a factual, empirical assertion uh, to get people to think their way. So they're trying to kind of bootstrap it, and they're trying to save it, I believe. Um, So I think it's slimy and shady the way they've done it, but I don't know if it's risen to the level of the type of fraud that we ought to um, consider to be some kind of rights violation or trespass. Uh, rather than just look, people need to look. It, it, it's caveat emptor. You, if you're going get to get in this wild west space, you need to know what you're doing. And if you're so stupid that you think Bitcoin Cash is Bitcoin, um, then you suffer the losses. That that would be my take on it. Uh, that said, I'm I have no problem whatsoever with Bitcoin Cash or any of the other altcoins existing or or emerging. Um, I think that is the protection for Bitcoin, that, that it goes through this crucible and it's able to survive despite the wild west of people. Look, the code is open source. People can copy it. They can modify it. They can make similar type of coins. I don't even know how many there are. There's over 1,000 now, I believe, right, of all coins.
0: Many thousands.
1: So I have no problem with that at all. People are free to do whatever they want. Um, I'm not some Hayekian like my friend Tucker seems to be lately where I think that uh, there's different currencies that are needed for different purposes. I, I think that's nonsense. I think that um, uh, currency or money is a type of thing where there, there would tend to be one because you only need one, and the, and the fewer there are, the better. Uh, w- what happens in the long run, I don't know, because you know the economy is always tending towards some kind of equilibrium, but it never gets there because everything changes all the time. So maybe it's a tendency that's never realized. Maybe we always have many currencies in the world. But I don't personally see a need for 1,000 cryptocurrencies. Um, uh, I do see a need for one, and I can see it upending the entire monetary order.
0: We actually had uh, Jeffrey on as well, our show, uh, a while back. It's interesting to see him now, So uh, being a fan of Bitcoin Cash so much. But still want to go back to the protection, fraud, caveat emptor question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So again, just to maybe put a bow on that one. At what point in a private property, economic sense, you know, can sell in sense, at what point would it classify some event, classify as fraud, where, uh, again, an off-chain analog solution is justified? Right. And even going back to my further uh, prior question, is it even possible to have an off-chain analog solution to such a complicated digital (laughs) issue?
1: Okay. So let's take, like, a classical case of fraud. So basically, um, you know... um, I sell you a, a basket of apples, and you give me a gold coin okay, in payment. So that's a, an economic exchange, and it's a legal exchange because in the legal system, you're recognized as having title or ownership to the coin, and I have title or ownership to the basket of apples. But a, an exchange is really a complicated series of of conditional title transfers. So even if it's contemporaneous and it's very simple and there's not even – um, what I'm saying is I give you these apples conditioned upon you giving me title to the coin and vice versa. But but those conditional promises can be unpacked because there's lots of subsidiary or auxiliary ones um, or implicit ones. So one of the implicit conditions – and by the way, if if the courts don't recognize them, people will add them. Explicitly into the contract if they have to. That's why contracts get so long. Lawyers have to sort of, uh, okay. The judge didn't see that this was understood, so we're gonna write. We're gonna make it explicit next time. So over time, people they put into contracts or into their words what they need to, and the rest they left unsaid because they uh, they know the customs of the area and they know what's going to be implied. That's just how it works. It's it's a it's an act of communication. But one of the implicit promises is that. Number one, I own the coin. Like I didn't steal the coin from my brother yesterday. Okay? So there's sort of a, a warranty or a guarantee that I own the coins. And, and the other promise might be, and these apples are real apples. They're not like plastic apples, and they don't all have worms in them. Okay? So there's all these subsidiary reasonable conditions. And by the way, if you probed the guys right before the transaction and you said, look, would you be willing to also agree that you own the coin – He would say, of course. I mean if he says, no, I'm not going to promise that, then you would get suspicious. right? So there's all these things you can build into the transaction. So if I give you plastic apples and you gave me your coin, I've in effect stolen your coin because the delivery of the coin to you was conditioned upon you telling the truth about your apples. Okay, So that's what fraud is in my view. Fraud is what we call in the common law theft by trickery or theft by deceit and all that does is recognize the fact that ownership of property gives the owner the right to decide who can use it or when to part with it okay so if i loan you my car and you take it for a ride you're not stealing my car because i gave you consent if you take my car without my consent you're stealing my car i mean so it all depends upon what the owner says Uh, If a woman consents to having sex, it's just sex, and if she doesn't consent, it's rape. So the consent of the owner of the resource in question is always what matters, and that's what contract law flows from, and that's what the concept of fraud flows from. Did you give consent? It's analogous to this idea in medical law where um, you know if a doctor does an operation on you and he removes your gallbladder, you consented to him cutting you open, sedating you, taking your gallbladder out. But if he goes in there and takes out another organ without your consent, that's a type of assault or trespass because you didn't give consent. And then the question whether there was informed consent comes up, but that's because of the doctor-patient relationship and so on. So that's how I think of fraud in general. Now, you don't want to have to rely on the legal system usually to, to stop yourself from being a victim of fraud. You'd rather stop it from happening in the first place. And if it's the type of thing where it's easy for you to just take reasonable, common sense measures not to be a, a, a dupe and be duped by someone who's selling you a bunch of snake oil, um, then in that case, it could be that your insurance company is not going to compensate you. So everyone might have an insurance company, right? Free in a private private society, right? We have an insurance company who's charged with protecting you from being invaded. But there's a moral hazard problem in rewarding people for stupidity, right? So you know, if my home is burglarized and my I'm, uh, I lose fifty thousand dollars worth of goods because someone broke in and I have an, an alarm system and I have my doors locked and I couldn't do anything to stop it, then the insurance payment would kick in. But you could see an insurance company saying, "Listen, if you leave your door unlocked or if you forget to pay the bill for your alarm company's monitoring service, we're not going to cover you for that because that's something easy for you to do. And if we're just going to pay for it anyway, you're going to have an incentive not to be precautious. You know, This is how these things work in the market and in life. And so you could see an insurance company-type situation moving towards um, not protecting you in the cases where you could have protected yourself by just being reasonable. So if you translate it to the digital era, when it's really hard to have a, a remedy because you just can't, no insurance company can order the Bitcoin system to readjust the ledger for your benefit because you were exactly. you were gullible and you gave your private key out to some chick at a bar you know, because she sweet-talked you, right? Sort of some, some, some kind of scam or sting operation, right? Um, so they know that they can't undo the, damage, Like your $100,000 was taken from your Bitcoin account. It's gone. You can't stop it, and and your insurance company can't. All your insurance company could do is is pay you $100,000. Now, if they think that that kind of thing is easily avoidable and um, is a moral hazard problem, they might exclude that from their coverage. And so as a practical matter… You're going to know that, listen, I'm going to be protected from things that are really beyond my control, but my insurance company expects me to also uh, do what I can, and if I don't do it, I'm not going to be covered. And once you get stolen, it's almost impossible to get the money back, so everyone starts having an incentive to be more careful on their own, and that is keep their private keys you know, in a certain place where no one else can have access to them, things like that. So I think it's natural. It's a natural thing.
0: So it all comes back to uh, insurance, doesn't it, in a private property society?
1: <laughs> I think that's an oversimplification the way I put it. But I think, yeah, ultimately it comes down to private incentives, um, you know, and you're going to have a d- deductible and all that kind of stuff because that's the way it works. So, you know, you're not going to bother with small claims. You're going to have to be careful on your own. You know, e- even if you had insurance that would give you a damage, a damage payment, if you got raped, you're not ambivalent to whether you get raped or not just because you can get paid for it after. It never makes up for the crime. You want to avoid the hassle in the first place. Um, so people are going to avoid dangerous areas in, in in Central Park at at two in the morning, so they don't have to get raped and then put an insurance claim in to get a million dollar compensation. They don't want the compensation. They want they want the the, the aggression not to happen in the first place. Um, and I think I think that negotiation between insurance and and people result in a natural balance.
0: Very interesting. I think that's a good place to leave it with that topic. I mean, it's uh, it's an interesting sort of uh, argument that's going on on Twitter, and I, and I don't know the latest details to be honest. But there definitely there was a contingency of hardcore Bitcoiners that were ready to try litigation against the Bitcoin Cash people, which, in my opinion, just does not relate at all to the way the digital world. digital blockchain world works and it, it it's not really addressing what's going on with the situation and i i can't see how it squares with a like a private property sort of society even though i may be even sympathetic to their claims
1: i agree totally i'm sympathetic but ultimately i support i would support the bitcoin cash people because they have a right to say what they want um and people should be careful not to you know, engage in pool transactions, N- know what you're doing. I mean, Bitcoin right now is in its infancy and, uh, you know, it's not for naive grandmothers right now.
0: <laughs> Very interesting. Uh, okay, well, we're running long. Maybe just one more uh, question to wrap it up. If blockchain really does pervade and become, you know, just sort of uh, like a commodity in society where we know that we can solve some of these long, you know, struggled for problems with, simplicity and transparency and immutability you know maybe the music industry they're trying you know with some things on ethereum maybe they can get it to where the drummer to the sound engineer can just so easily get paid and this presumes you know transaction fees and scaling is solved which is a big if Mm -hmm. Uh, but if this technology really could deliver on some of these issues do you think that this is a genuine way to uh just sort of uh sweep all of the bad legal practices under the rug and ignore them for the rest of history. Let's just uh let's get past you know, we're never gonna overturn it seems that we're never really gonna overturn IP like the formal way. We just gotta beat it with technology. Do you do you agree? Do you think there's hope there with blockchain? Okay.
1: That's a complicated question because I think um the reason we have IP is because people are deeply confused about this ownership idea uh, and the right to be rewarded for engaging in creative thought and innovative action. Uh, As as long as that idea lingers, the idea that you have some kind of tenuous claim to be compensated for doing something good for humanity, right? (laughs) for giving us useful information, um, IP laws are probably going to exist, and then people will feel this desire to reward innovators. So then you'll still have the Patreon model too, and I'm not totally opposed to that uh, either, um, although I think it's largely a remnant of IP-type thinking. Um, I, I do think that the, you know, the advent of micropayments um, will make it easier for people to engage in um, incentivizing-type behavior. Like they'll be able to reward things they want to reward, and that's a good thing. Um, now I don't, I don't really. It looks to me like block, on-chain transactions are not suitable in the future for for micropayments, um, and so payment mechanisms will have to be come up with that permit that. And if they could be come up with, they could be used with fiat currency too. So I don't really know why the micropayment idea is a unique to Bitcoin. Uh, although I, I, you know, I I defer to my technological betters on this issue. But a lot of people have suggested that we could have a private form of IP, and we could use a blockchain-type system for that, like embedding proof of proof of conception of, of of an idea in the blockchain. But to me, that's that's just
0: the metadata.
1: Yeah, yeah, in the in, in the yeah in the metadata. To me, that's just I'm I totally opposed to that. I th- I think that. Actually, there's some suggestions along these lines back in, the, in Morris Tannehill, Morris and Linda Tannehill's classic book, uh, *The Market for Liberty* in seventy, see seventy-three or seventy-four, where they, you know, they're kind of randy and anarchists, but they were trying to, they were trying to explain how in a free market, private anarchist society, you would still have patent and copyright protected, and they had this kind of scheme with arbitration companies and. And I, I, I have no doubt that if Bitcoin had been around, they would say, "Oh, and you could you could have an indelible record of when someone came up with this novel." Or, uh, <laughs> first of all, there's no problem now with knowing who wrote a novel. Every uh, there's almost never a case where two people say, "I really wrote *Hunger Games*," and I, y- there, there's no problem of evidence that Bitcoin or blockchain is needed to solve. Um, and the same thing with scientific discoveries. I mean, you, you do have cases in, in, in history where, you know, Einstein and someone else, or, or this scientist and this one, argue who who came up with the light bulb first, or, or the theory of relativity, or something, or some some formula. And they're not really getting property rights in it. They're just arguing for scientific uh, credit. Um, and a, a blockchain wouldn't help that because they could both put their put their claims in the blockchain, and people would still have to dispute about. Uh, who, who, who was really right? Um, so, you know, I don't really see it as, as as being useful for that, to be honest. And I don't really think um, we want to come up with ways to enforce patent and copyright, even in so-called private versions. Um, so, I, that's not what appeals to me about <laughs> blockchain. Uh, what appeals to me about blockchain is a threat to government money and a more solid money that. Is deflating all the time in terms of, of price and value and not inflating, and that is not subject to government controls. There's, and there's no strangle points where the government can cut off some people um, who aren't pleasing the regime.
0: Totally agree with all those points. And I, I would definitely not argue that you would want to put IP on the blockchain. I would just. Uh... Well, first of all, to address the question of layering, as you meant, or, or uh, settling on-chain with micropayments, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think we'll find, my own opinion, I think that a layered solution, you know, like the Lightning Network or um, mm-hmm, these mm-hmm. other ones, you know, Plasma and Ethereum, I think that they will offer something that's definitely better than fiduciary fiat media. You know, I mean, it's, it is it is permanently pegged. Mm-hmm. Of course, the, there is some risk of getting that payment back onto the chain eventually for final settlement, but it's it's a different, in my opinion, it's totally different than a, a fractionalized fiduciary system. So I think uh-huh. I do think that there's a, there are use cases for micropayments. But even if something like Ethereum was only good for getting musicians paid better <laughs> because they could settle all of their complicated personal agreements with the whole band and the sound engineer and everybody you know from from the local level to the tour level everything you know cuz obviously people be paying in digital currency of course if that works then you have you've have solved like a huge swath of of copyright issues because it's just simple now you don't have to it's it's final it settles either on a layer or on the blockchain to me it's a it's a big hope i don't want to be too pollyannish about it but i don't know do you think that there is future in that in sort of killing some of the problems that that ip uh, causes
1: um, possibly. I don't know. To be honest, I'm not familiar enough with the, the music industry. Um, uh, personally, anything that would um, enable musicians to prosper, and most musicians are not, you know, going to be Prince or Madonna making that kind of money anyway. They're just trying to avoid the middleman and make an honest living from providing, you know gratification to their fans, right? Um, anything that makes that easier would be a good thing. And if micropayments or some kind of digital currency system can do that, um, I'm totally in favor of it. Um, and it might re- it might reduce some of the pressure for calls for enhanced copyright um, protections and things like that because artists are finding their own ways to do it just in their communities using you know decentralized payment mechanisms. So it's a way to get around the gatekeepers, right? So with the advent of self-publishing and the Internet – uh, a lot of musicians have gotten around or starting to get around the, the the publishing industry gatekeepers, and with privatized money uh, you know maybe they, that would be another way of getting around a type of uh, type of gatekeeper that we have the financial gatekeepers
0: and I know I said it was the last question, but um just for our listeners because uh, we we've, t- we've been talking about i p and haven't really what is your estimate of of uh, the damages that sort of are caused by some of this IP, patent, and copyright law over the whole world economy. I mean, you've estimated it in like the trillions of dollars of friction.
1: Yeah, I think patent law is the most damaging in a, in a tangible sense because uh, patent law uh, uh, significantly impedes and slows down and distorts um, scientific research and development and innovation and uh, technical innovation. Um, and that, and, and the accumulation of these, what, we, what Rothbard would call recipes, right? The accumulation of the knowledge of how to manipulate causal factors in the world is what makes us richer every generation and every every year. And if you slow that down, the cumulative effect over time is it's, it's, it's staggering. Um, I, you know, if you if you date it in the last 200 years, which is really when the an institutionalized patent system kicked into place, the advent of the U.S. and the Industrial Revolution um it's 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 in it's incalculable how much we've lost but i think it's only order of hundreds of billions of dollars per year if not trillions uh, in terms of if you just wanted to measure in dollar terms the value of the innovation that we would have had um in a really technologically free world so it's just staggering it, the cost in human lives and human welfare is is incredible I mean, we, we might have had personal flying cars by now. The, the lifespan might be 1,000 years. You, you never know. It's just it's, – it's almost sad to think about. Cop- but patents last about 17 years, roughly, since when they're granted. So they finally expire, and people can use that idea freely. Copyrights um, are almost worse than patents, even though they don't do as much of uh, – of, of sus- like measurable damage because they don't really impede innovation, but what they do is they impede the flow of ideas and they heavily distort the culture. Right? Um, the, the examples are too numerous to go into, but you know, just the just the habit of 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 of, of, of um, Hollywood and producing a sequel because only they can do it because of copyright, and so that's a safe bet. So you have this sequel culture, lots of distortions of, of culture because of copyright. People are steered into doing things in a certain way because they can make more money off of it with a copyright than otherwise. So you have a distortion of the culture. Um, you, have an, uh, you have basically censorship of certain ideas. You know, people are not able to do – they have this idea to remix something or do this or even to write a sequel, and they just know they can't do it, so they can't do it. They write a documentary, and they have to cut pieces out because they're being sued because there's a, there's a logo in there or something in the background that they – you know, all these things. But the worst thing about copyright is that it lasts so long now. It used to last about 14 to 28 years, but now it lasts 120, 30, 40 years, depending upon when the author dies. So it lasts over a century in most cases, um, and – Um, And the government uses this continuously as a threat to trade deals. Like they say, we're not going to do a a free trade deal with China because unless they increase their copyright law protection, which their internal copyright law has nothing to do with free trade between nations. But it's used to to block free trade, which is another um, practice that helps so many humans in the world. And if we inhibit free trade, we're we're killing people literally – uh, but it's also used as an excuse to restrict freedom on the internet. So you have SOPA, which we defeated narrowly, but you have ACTA, the American – I forgot the name the anti-counterfeiting treaty. Um, and now you have other agreements that are always raising their heads uh, in the form of trade agreements or international um, uh, agreements where these countries are just ratcheting up their control all the time. And they're, they will threaten to kick people off of the internet for life. If they're caught pirating too many movies or whatever, so you know anything to me that threatens the freedom of the internet is is an existential threat to liberty and to the human race because the internet is one of the most important developments we've ever had. It's our ability to communicate and to watch the government and to expose what they're doing. Um, and if you start restricting the freedom to use the internet and to um, in the name of copyright, then that's just another reason why we should get rid of copyright, because it threatens internet freedom and threatens the human the human race. Um, so patents are worse, I think, in terms of how they've held us back technologically and in terms of wealth, and copyrights threaten our freedom so severely. So I don't know which one's worse.
0: Well, I think it's a great way to end it. I, I would love to go 50 more directions on that and, and keep exploring, but perhaps for another time. The more and more I read and, and, and learn about the work that you've been doing and others uh the more pervasive you see it yes. being and is a really big problem for just general free trade and economics i mean trade yes. competition yes. uh markets in and of themselves it's it's very fundamental and uh well let's hope i guess uh take away, general takeaway that the copyright of legal tender or money for central governments around the world can can truly be threatened uh from bitcoin so that's uh that's what I'm hoping for. Uh, Stefan, as we, as we leave it, where can our listeners find you on the internet?
1: Uh, at my website, stefankinsella.com.
0: Okay, uh, and we will link to that, the articles, uh, some of your works as well, for sure. One more final question. What percentage of your clients actually know about your side gig interests?
1: <laughs> uh, almost none, and they don't care. I mean, in the beginning of my career, I was, I was, I was a little bit cautious about coming out, so to speak. I thought it would hurt my career but I realize no one pays attention and they don't care. They, all they In fact, the few that find out they they want to hire me because they figure I must know the law pretty well if I'm so opinionated and willing to write on it. I mean, so even though I'm against it, they don't care my what my policy views are, but they take it as a sign of competence that I know enough about it to have such an uh, such a loud opinion. So, it hasn't hurt me in my career.
0: It's amazing. I love it. Stefan, thanks a lot for your time. Really appreciate uh, you coming on the show. Thanks, man.